Hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up that in this episode, we do mention Danny Elfman. We recorded it before the allegations against him broke. And if you are following that story or are affected by it, we wanted to let you know that the Autistic Culture Podcast stands with victims of assault. We wish the autistic community comfort and healing as we grapple with our feelings both individually and collectively. Please take care while listening. Some people are really good at narrative and some people are really good at action. I'm not that sort of person. So if I'm going to do something, just let me do my thing and hope for the best. If you don't want me to do it, then don't have me do it. But if I do it, then don't make me conform. (laughs) This is the way. Episode 41, Tim Burton is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. Autistica. Hey, Angela. How are you? Hey, Matt. I'm good. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Has the Halloween dragon been to visit yet? Oh, uh, the Halloween dragon is due to come by tonight and will bring a wonderful bunch of Legos and books and uh, candy of all types. Excellent. It's going to be fantastic. Excellent. We we have a trick or treat for the people here today because we are going to talk about a topic, uh, a person that is of great interest to our listeners and to Halloween itself. Yes, I am ready for it. I, I This was partially by special request. This has been on our list, but I was like, this is the story I need to hear. So who are you going to tell me a story about? Today, we are going to be talking about Tim Burton and the incredible host of autistic people that he surrounds himself with. And characters, because characters count too, right? Yes, yes. It's a fantastic story, and it takes a lot of twists and turns, and a lot of people that you wouldn't expect. For instance, his entire career is based on Gilbert Gottfried. But Twist! Upcoming, okay. I can't wait to hear that one. Tricks and treats all around. But uh, I want to start this off with one of my favorite quotes from any Tim Burton movie ever. 
because it is a one of Tim Burton's movies, Big Fish. Every single time I watch it, it punches me right in the gut because it is a fantastic story. But a quote from this story. <clears throat> Most men will tell a story straight through. It won't be complicated, but it won't be interesting either. Amazing. So we are going to tell a very, very interesting story about Tim Burton's life that starts in 1920. Okay, which is far before Tim Burton was born, I believe. Long before. <laughs> so in 1920, it was the release of the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And this was a German expressionist cinema movie that starred, uh, oh man, I can't remember his name, but uh, it starred a somnambulist, a sleepwalker named Cesar, and an evil psychiatrist named Dr. Caligari. And Dr. Caligari had a sideshow, and he would commit murders with the help of the sleepwalking Cesar. And the movie is about stopping Cesar and making everything better and it was very 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 influential in everything tim burton has ever made i recommend if you love tim burton you must see this movie because it has elements of everything from edward scissorhands to batman returns to a nightmare before christmas all of the structures are at an angle and kind of skewed and a little dr seussian and it's all it's of course in black and white and there's spirals and Beetlejuice-esque sort of uh, designs in yes. here. A everything that Tim Burton loves comes from this movie. And it, and it. Uh, by the way, I just put the link in the show notes. It's 51 minutes. It is a silent movie, but it's 51 minutes. So that's like very doable. It is. And even better, it came out again in 1920, uh, around World War One, And it, it was a German expressionist film. And at the time, the Germans were like, you know, we're, we're not really fond of those who would, you know, speak out against authority figures like a psychiatrist. We need you to tack on an ending that says that everything is OK. So they, the director tacked on an extra ending that shows that the heroes of the movie were actually in an insane asylum run by Dr. Dr. Caligari, where everything is even weirder. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a very, very nonconformist, very, very uh, anti-fascist, very, very influential on a young man who was born in 1958. All right. So Timothy Walter Burton was born on August 25th, 1958. He was the son of William Bill Burton, a former minor league baseball player oh. who, who ended up working for the Parks and Recreation Department. Okay. We to the Parks, and Rec Park, song. Parks and Rec, yeah. <laughs> and his mother uh, was an artist who became the owner of a cat themed gift shop. Okay. I think I figured something out already. <laughs> and Tim said that he grew up a lonely and isolated child and he he could not relate to his father. Oh wait, was he an only child? Uh, he was. Okay. Right. And he he could not relate to his father again, mother sort of artsy, cat theme gift shop, probably one of us. Probably one of so us. So he very heavily related to classic universal monsters like Frankenstein. Oh. And uh, he and I are simpatico on that because Frankenstein was one of my favorites growing up. Uh, more of the book than the movie, but the movie has great art design. 
But he felt isolated and felt related to the monsters because they were all different. He loved monsters and he got into art and he loved drawing monsters. And by the age of 13, he started to make home movies of his own because he loved movies. His first movie at the age of 13 in 1971 was The Island of Dr. Al Gore, uh, which was a you know interpretation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. He loved making stop motion movies because he could do it all by himself. Yeah. He could do the voices. He could do the animation. He loved stop motion. Uh, he made nine movies between the age of 13 to 24. And there was a lot of focus on dead dogs because his own dog died. Oh, okay. And if you uh, look at his later movies, it inspired Frankenweenie, Zero from Nightmare Before Christmas, Scraps oh, from The Corpse Bride, yeah. and then Frankenweenie again when, you know, he made remade it. As needed. So uh, he attended Burbank High School, but was not a particularly good student and may have been dyslexic. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. What's the, do you know what the co-occurrence of dyslexia is in the autistic population? That's an interesting thing because when, in, in the cases that I've seen, uh, I, I've seen some people who are genuinely dyslexic because it's an issue with rods and cones and they can make glasses and all this other sort of stuff. But a lot of autistic people are meat eyeballs, uh, don't move as fast as our lightning fast brains. So we sort of skip over words and letters and our brain fills in the blanks that it may not be accurate. Mm -hmm. So we may not be reading all the stuff that we think that we're reading. And that's why a lot of autistic kids get in trouble in school because it's not really captivating because he is more of a visual person. Clearly. And so this was not one of his big interests. So uh, yeah, he, he just loved painting and drawing and watching movies. Reading, not one of his favorites. Mm. So this is a big reason why he sought out writers that he could work with because he's great with the visual aspect. He, he does the art design for everything. He did the art design for like Edward Scissorhands and he drew the Joker for Batman and everything that he works on, he draws the initial art design himself. And it, you know, this is his way. He thinks visually. Yep. As autistic people may be doing. Mm -hmm. Not this autistic person, but I do get that. If I'm developing something, there's no way for me to develop a new idea without writing like tens of thousands of words. Like I have to describe every single thing and I have to make spreadsheets and I can't see it till I have words on the page. So I get it. It's like how, from his perspective, like how could you write it down and know what it was? To how, you got to see it. I'm going to have yeah. to draw it. So, yeah, it's interesting when you have that visual brain. It's just not going to make sense. And then also, of course, we did our motion pictures, our autistic episode. Oh, yes. I could see why, like, uh, now, since I'm drawing it, let me do some stop motion or make a flip book so that I can actually see what it looks like moving like a horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's it's tangible movement for him. Right. And frame by frame, he he understands movement. Makes so much sense. And this this is this is what got him through school. This is what made him go to Cal Arts in Santa Clarita. He studied character animation and he started making other shorts like Stalk of the Celery Monster and The King and the Octopus. 
And uh, he he started getting into puppeteering and became a member of the Puppeteers Guild, which came in handy because he was uh, on the set of uh, he, he actually participated in the Muppet movie in 1979 in the in sequence of, for a Rainbow Connection because they needed every puppeteer they could find, every guild member that they could find to to puppeteer literally every Muppet they had. I think that made a, I think that made an appearance in our, didn't we do a Jim Henson episode? Oh, not, not yet. Do we need to? Oh, okay. Yes. Cause this is sounding familiar. Yes. We will definitely do a Jim Henson episode. Yeah. Cause man, sure. Jim Henson. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, great, but, great. yeah. So he, he is in the Muppet movie and it's, uh, it's debated because he remembers who he was standing near, for instance, like uh, Frank Oz and Oh, Oh, the, the John Landis, John Landis played Grover and he, he remembered standing near John Landis, but that, that narrows it down to like a bunch of five Muppets that you can point out in the pit. But, but anyway, his big break, although he didn't know it, came in 1980 when Gilbert Gottfried uh, scored a coveted position on Saturday Night Live because the original cast of Not Ready for Primetime Players cycled out and they all went on to make movies and they needed a whole new cast. And there was one open slot and it went to one of two people, either Gilbert Gottfried or a man named Paul Rubens. Oh, R.I.P., R.I.P. Exactly. <laughs> and and sadly, Paul Rubens did not make the cut. Uh, wow. So he was Paul Rubens was very upset by this. Paul Rubens was very upset that he was not invited to be on the cast of Saturday Night Live, a cast which lasted for one season and no one remembers and everyone hated. So Paul Rubens decided he was going to strike out on his own and make his own Broadway show called the Pee Wee Herman Show. Well, that worked out. It did. And the Pee Wee Herman show became very, very popular and lots and lots of people liked it. And uh, eventually he would want to make a movie, but we're not there yet. So uh, at age 24, Tim, back to Tim Burton, the subject of this podcast, uh, he had been working as a Disney animator. He'd been working as a storyboard artist, a graphic designer, an art director, and a concept artist on films such as The Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron. But his concept art didn't make into any of those films. Um. At the age of 24, he made the short Vincent, which is a stop motion sort of autobiography about himself relating to Vincent Price and being all isolated and being weird and macabre and with a narration by Vincent Price, one of his childhood heroes. And that got some attention. So uh, he was invited to do a Japanese interpretation of Hansel and Gretel, which was really trippy. And it aired exactly once. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, it was uh, on the Disney Channel on uh, Halloween night, 1983 at 1030 p.m. And it climaxes in a kung fu fight between Hansel and Gretel and the witch. And everybody is played by Japanese people who are dubbed over in English. And it uh, it it it's it is Tim Burton at his Tim Burtoniest. I recommend you find it because you can't buy it anywhere, but it's on YouTube. 
I was going to say, I feel like we need a letter writing campaign to bring that back. 83, not a lot of people had cable then even. How many people could have seen this thing? Yeah, very, very few because, again, Disney hated it. And Mm -hmm. uh, at age 26, uh, he was allowed to do Frankenweenie, which was a short film shot in black and white with Shelley Duvall and Daniel, uh, oh, man, uh, the the guy who uh, was uh, the narrator from Wonder Years. Oh, uh, I love him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in Home uh-huh. Alone, uh, the, the Search for Curly's Gold. Uh, man, I can't remember his name. But but uh, anyway, uh, Frankenweenie was the heartwarming story about a boy whose dog dies. And he decided he's going to be Dr. Frankenstein, bring the dog back to life. Disney was horrified. And they said, no, you shall never, ever, ever work for us again, ever get out now. Last job. Yeah. Okay. So, so Tim Burton was like, perhaps I will never work again. Oh, my. Everyone hates me. Yeah. But fortunately, I, oh, yes. I just want to say too, like Paul Rubens doesn't get the job. Tim loses his job. This is the way of our people. We often do not fit into other people's groups, but look. Well, I I think I know where we're going with Tim Burton. And it was definitely, if you are in a dark time now, my friend, take heart. Because doing your own thing might be what the gods have in store for you. And that's the thing. Because around this time, uh, right after Tim Burton was fired by Disney, Paul Rubens was looking for a director to make a Pee Wee Herman movie. Because... Pee-wee was at the top of everybody's list. He did appearances as Pee-wee. Pee-wee became his own entity. And again, not uh, uh, a studio couldn't own copyright because Paul Rubens was Pee-wee. Yeah, right. So uh, Paul Rubens decided that there was only one man for the job, only one man who understood his way of thinking, and that was the man who did Vincent. So he had his people look out for the director of Vincent. And he said, I will only allow that particular man to direct my movie. So uh, this is uh, what Tim Burton said about his directing and about, you know, being fired from Disney and about his new opportunity with Tim Burton. That's good. I set him Uh, up for this uh, point. Paul Rubens. Yeah. Some people are really good at narrative and some people are really good at action. I'm not that sort of person. So if I'm going to do something, just let me do my thing and hope for the best. If you don't want me to do it, then don't have me do it. But if I do it, then don't make me conform. (laughs) This is the way. (laughs) And and that is exactly what Paul Rubens was looking for with Pee Wee, because only the mind of Tim Burton, who brought forth Vincent and Frankenweenie, could properly translate large Marge to the big screen. Right. <sighs> and and again, Tim Burton doing stop motion. That is one of the pants soiling moments of my childhood. How about yours, listeners? So he did extremely well. It was very popular. He made a name for himself as an avant-garde filmmaker. Uh, but again, it didn't pay the bills at the moment. So he decided to work for TV. And he worked on Amazing Stories, a an anthology show brought about by Steven Spielberg. He was an animation designer on the 1987 episode Family Dog with Brad Bird, who would later do The Incredibles and uh, uh, The Iron Giant and many other big time animation. And 
All of Family Dog is based on Tim Burton's art style. He later had a TV series in the 90s based on this episode of Amazing Stories. But in 1986, uh, there was an episode of Amazing Stories called Boo! Exclamation mark. Okay, happy Halloween. <laughs> and it featured the story of a couple who were ghosts living in a house that was inhabited by people they did not like, and they needed to scare them to get them out of the house. Wait, wait, is the couple Jack and Sally? Uh, oh, no, no, no. No, um, different they, couple. They, they, they would become the Maitlands from Beetlejuice. Oh, <laughs> even better. Okay, got it. And, uh... So, but, but, but again, this was way before, uh, this was two years before Beetlejuice and it starred the impeccable Robert Picardo, uh, the only uh, man who was not British who was ever characterized as the doctor. Uh, but, but anyway, the, the movie Beetlejuice was originally written by Michael McDowell. And the script was very horror oriented. Uh, it was, uh, they planned to get Wes Craven to direct it. And it was going to be like his Night of the Demons, where Beetlejuice was a winged demon and took on the form of a short Middle Eastern man who wanted to rape Lydia. Well, if you ever wonder what do directors actually do, now you know. (laughs) Same script, two very different directions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, at that time, there were two daughters uh, involved and the nine-year-old was going to be murdered in horrible fashion because, again, it was going to be a horror movie. But... They brought on the the indomitable, my or the, the Michael Keaton came later. Uh, they, they brought on Tim Burton because somebody said, you know, perhaps we should uh, put another angle on this. And Tim Burton said, you know what? I think we should make this a wee bit quirkier and a lot less murderier. Mm. So he decided to add some comedy, uh, a la, you know, boo. He uh, decided to, uh, he wanted to cast Sammy Davis Jr. Because at the time he wanted to make Beetlejuice more of a lounge singer, but Sammy Davis Jr. was 60. So Sammy kind of passed on this. And David Geffen, the producer, said, perhaps you should look into this fellow Mr. Mom because he's pretty funny. So... They had a meeting with Michael Keaton and Tim Burton tried to explain Beetlejuice to Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton says, man, I don't understand anything you're talking about. So he turned it down. And so, but, but he liked Tim Burton. He liked Tim Burton as a person. He thought they vibed well. Uh, And so Tim Burton said, Hey, perhaps we could meet again and I can try to explain it better because communication is not my strong suit. And maybe I can draw you some pictures and make you some models. Can you hold a figure in your hand? Yeah, he, he, Tim Burton is not a verbal person. He's uh, an art person. So he tried again. And Tim uh, and uh, Michael Keaton said, I'm even more confused than I was last time. I think I will pass. But I like you. You're a good guy. And finally, he said, perhaps I should show you some drawings. Would you like to see some drawings? And then Michael Keaton says, oh, yeah, I can get into that. That's pretty key. Cool. All right. So. Michael Keaton noted that Tim Burton communicates differently than other directors Hmm. and that the people that he works successfully with, like Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter and Catherine O'Hara, they have an unwritten language and an inherent understanding of each other. And therefore, Tim Burton continually teams up with actors who understand his style and minimalistic communication during filming.
as always, this podcast is free and it will remain free, but we do now have a paid subscription over on our Substack page, which we wanted to tell you about. It includes lots of extras like private Q&A calls with Matt and I, our book club with our favorite book picks and discounts in our Tee Public store. You can check out all the goodies over on our Substack page at autisticculture.substack.com. This makes so much sense because I was like, oh, he just keeps casting the same people because they're his friends and it's a long time to make a movie. So you want to hang out together. But I never really thought of it from like, if you have an autistic communication style, there will be fewer people who naturally get you just percentage wise. And so when you find people who get you, whether they're holistic or autistic, it's like, can I stick with the people who get me? Because it's so tiring otherwise. Exactly. And when he finds people that he vibes with, he sticks with them forever because those are the people that he trusts. Yeah. So so uh, th- this movie, uh, the producers wanted to call it House Ghost instead of Beetlejuice because Beetlejuice was a crazy name. He fought for Beetlejuice. He countered with Scared Sheetless as, you know, a bargaining tactic. And they said, oh, I like that better. And he said, no, forgot I said that. So... So he he loved the stop motion aspect of the sandworms and he colored all of the netherworld based on Necco wafers because he really, really loved the spooky. He really, really loved the gothic aesthetics. He and he really, really liked his cast because uh, he he almost cast Alyssa Milano as Lydia. But Winona Ryder beat her mm-hmm. out and Winona Ryder was 16 at the time and when when doing research for this episode I did not have to go far because I have Tim Burton's entire film library on DVD and Blu-ray and every single one of them has behind the scenes of uh, featurettes which is why I love physical media and uh, uh, well I have since ripped all of those featurettes to my computer for easily viewing but but if you watch the behind the scenes featurettes for Beetlejuice Winona Ryder has such an autistic accent. <gasps> it's magnificent. Wow. It is so wonderful. Wow. And, yeah. and that's like, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but like it's such a pre, I don't know what happened to her before 16, but I know there's been a lot of trauma post yeah. 16. And yeah. so um, there's probably trauma pre 16, but I was going to say it was such a more innocent, like natural Winona, because now you get Winona plus trauma, like you get yeah. autistic accent, but tra- it's hard to separate out. And I think that's like one of the things we're looking at here is like, what's autistic trauma without the, or what's autistic culture without the trauma and the pathologization? And that gives you a little look into who she might have been if people weren't asking her to be someone else. Yeah, because that's the thing about being an end. And the masking is going to come to bite Tim Burton in the ass pretty soon, too. But oh. yeah, it's it's one of those things. But but uh, so Angelica Houston was originally cast as the the the, the stepmom. Gina but, Davis, that that role, uh, the Gina uh, Davis role. Oh, no, no, no. The the the, the human mom, uh, Lydia's mom. 
okay. But but she had to drop out because she was, you know, uh, otherwise occupied. But again, that'll come in handy with a later project. Mm-hmm. But so so she was replaced with Catherine O'Hara. Uh, and she and Tim Burton got along quite well. And he set her up with Bo Welch, the set designer, because he thought that they would match well. And apparently they did because they got married and had two kids. Oh, and nice. It, it was her suggestion because they, they were doing the dinner scene and they didn't know what music to play. She suggested, have you tried Calypso? And they looked into it and they said, perhaps we should have Calypso throughout the entire movie. So the entire movie now has a very Harry Belafonte vibe. Mm-hmm. Sure does. So, so before playing Moira on Schitt's Creek, she was in Beetlejuice and she went later went on to play Sally in Nightmare Before Christmas. But but of course, I forgot to mention that uh, when we were working on uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Paul Rubens said, you know what this movie needs? A quirky soundtrack. Have you ever heard Oingo Boingo? <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, Paul Rubens introduced Tim Burton to Danny Elfman. And Danny Elfman became Tim Burton's musical soulmate because, again, with all the people that Tim Burton really, really vibes with, they have this unspoken communication and they just get each other. So a lot of... A lot of Beetlejuice was based on, you know, the the musical stylings of Danny Elfman because he could even turn the terrifying into something sort of whimsical. Whimsical, yep. And that's so. So they later decided that uh, they should also do Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, the unmade sequel, because Tim Burton wanted to do a mix of German expressionism and beach movies from the 1950s. Sure. Because he and Danny Elfman said, boy, that would be fun. Uh, And then it later became Beetlejuice in Love. But uh, Tim Burton was involved with a much bigger project that took away all of his time. Batman. Oh, okay. So uh, Batman changed everything for him. Uh, Again, Tim Burton was not big on the comic books because of the dyslexia. Mm. Tim Burton uh, could not keep track of who, which order the bubbles were supposed to go in, where you're supposed to read it at. But there was one thing that he really, really did like order versus chaos. Okay. So he rewrote the uh, the current script to make it so that the Joker killed Batman's parents and that Batman was a direct response of this chaos. Batman lives alone in his big house, has parties where he doesn't talk to anybody, dresses up in the middle of the night and stops chaos because this is the autistic way. <laughs> Love it. And, uh, of course, he brought in Danny Elfman to do all the music because why wouldn't he? And he was at frequent odds with John Peters, the producer of the film. John Peters, by all accounts, super neurotypical. I was going to say, let me guess. (laughs) He decided at the last minute to build a 40-foot cathedral model and said, Tim, work this into the finale for no reason. So Tim Burton had to rewrite the finale himself to make sense of it. And during the shooting, uh, Kim Bassinger was like, why are we walking up these stairs? And he said, don't worry, we'll figure it out. And Tim or uh, John Peters also wanted Batman to fight a sword ninja and had to make that happen. So there was a lot of compromises, but Batman was still a very Tim Burton thing. But uh, this later, uh, 
because of this, Batman made a ridiculous amount of money and made Tim Burton a very, very bankable Hollywood commodity. And he used that as leverage to say, well, if you want another Batman, you're going to have to let me do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. And they said, yeah, sure, why, whatever. You're weird, but you're profitably weird, so we will accept that. Yay, capitalism wins again! <laughs> so uh, at that time, uh, he was offered the Adams Family, but had to turn it down due to Batman Returns. He, he really wanted to do the Adams Family. He was a fan of the Adams Family. Uh, could not do it. He, he did do Edward Scissorhands in 1990. And Edward Scissorhands was autobiographical for Tim Burton. Growing up in Burbank with all the little boxes, all the ticky-tacky houses, everyone looking exactly the same, and Tim being a very isolated kid with big hair. And he drew himself as uh, Edward Scissorhands and said to his friend, Caroline Thompson, hey, look at this guy. Look at all the scissors on his hands. Could you write a movie based on him? And she said, yeah, sure. So Caroline Thompson is one of the autistic unsung heroes of the movie industry. This woman... Uh, if you are able to check out the behind-the-scenes stuff on the discs uh, for Edward Scissorhands, Blu-ray and DVD, she describes herself as uh, loving riding horses and riding and bought a house designed by Walt Disney because she loves Disney. So check out the episode that we did on horses. Check out the episode we did on Disney. Uh, so she, she wrote Edward Scissorhands based on Tim's story and designs, and uh, she struck up a relationship with one of Tim's friends, Danny Elfman. Oh. So Danny Elfman moved into her house and she wrote uh, Edward Scissorhands. Uh, it's, so he was going to cast a young Robert Downey Jr. as Edward Scissorhands until uh, uh, Winona Ryder, who is his star of the movie, said, would you like to meet my boyfriend, who coincidentally was autistic? And that's how he was introduced to Johnny Depp. Love it. <laughs> so the real life relationship between Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp uh, influenced the screen and became one of, you know, Tim Burton's greatest acting friends. So they they made Edward Scissorhands this story where, you know, he got to work with his loving mentor, Vincent Price, who died shortly after, just like his character died in the movie which was very, very sad and tragic. And we'll get into how that influenced the rest of Tim Burton's life in just a little bit. But it was very autobiographical of Tim Burton. But uh, this, so he started uh, pre-production on Batman Returns, but he really also, because he's very busy and at this point could do anything he wanted. Uh, previously, when he worked for Disney, he showed them a delightful sketch of a little man with a skeleton head that he called Jack Skellington. And he said, hey, would you like to do this? And they said, no, you're weird go away and then after he started making all these successful movies somebody at disney said hey i think that we have an option for that thing that that weird guy did let's make that thing by that weird guy mm -hmm. so they called him up and he said well right now i'm busy on batman but uh, i think a couple of my friends could do this so he called up the guy that uh, wrote uh did the first draft on beetlejuice uh Michael McDowell. And just as Tim Burton had a long-standing relationship with Danny Elfman, Michael McDowell had a long-standing relationship with cocaine. Oh. And that did not quite work out. 
So uh, while uh, Tim Burton was doing Batman, uh, while Tim Burton was doing Batman Returns, rather, Michael McDowell was doing cocaine and there was no script being written. So Danny Elfman and Caroline Thompson were sitting at home together and they said, you know what? I bet we could write all the songs while we're waiting on the script. So they wrote the songs based on their own life. All of Jack Skellington's songs are based on Danny Elfman making the transition oh. from being a pop artist to being a music, a, a, a score artist, uh, a, a, a soundtrack artist. Soundtracker, yeah. Because he he had conquered pop music through Oingo Boingo. He could do that in his sleep, but he wanted this brand new thing, and it was scary. It was new and it was weird. But he, what is this? So all of the songs that Jack sings are based on this. All of Sally songs are based on caroline thompson's life i love that so so they went ahead and wrote all the songs and uh again since michael mcdowell was doing all the cocaine in the world tim burton eventually said all right let's fire him and let caroline write the movie so she wrote the movie and they got tim burton's friend uh Henry Selleck to do the directing, even though it's called Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas. They did that mainly for marketing because he came up with the original idea. But Henry Selleck is very, very autistic in himself. And if you watch any behind the scenes interviews, of course, no eye contact, the rocking, the stimming, the autistic accent. Uh, And of course, he shared Tim Burton's love of stop motion because you sit there and you don't talk with people for years at a time and you control every little aspect of the movement because this is the way. (laughs) Yes. So, so. Yeah, they, they had this great relationship. And at the end of the movie, they they were struggling to come up with a conclusion because, again, they were writing and making this thing on the fly. And uh, originally, uh, they were going to make Dr. Finkelstein secretly oogie boogie. And they, they did the voice. They did everything. And Tim Burton came in one day and he was so upset by this that he kicked a hole in the wall. So they framed the hole in the wall and said, Tim was here. So they said, perhaps we should not do that. And uh, by this time, Danny Elfman was so entranced with Jack. He wanted to do the singing voice. He wanted to do the speaking voice. Tim said, all right. But again, Danny was a good singer. Hence with Oingo Boingo, he was not a good actor. Nah. So they replaced him with Prince Humperdinck. Yep. (sighs) So so it's Prince Humperdinck and Moira from Schitt's Creek are Jack and Sally. (laughs) Yes. Chris is that Chris Sarandon? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, so so uh, Caroline Thompson would, you know, go and work for, you know, uh, Tim many more times. Uh, but in the meantime, her filmography includes writing Edward Scissorhands, The Addams Family, Homeward Bound, The Secret Garden, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Black Beauty, Buddy, Snow White, Fairest of Them All, The Corpse Bride, City of Ember, which was directed by Autistic Gil Keenan, the writer of the new Ghostbusters movies and the director of the newest Ghostbuster movie that will be out in January. And Welcome to Marwin. And uh, she said of herself, this is uh, how she would like to be remembered. Mm, Okay. She said, I would be happy to be labeled as a writer of offbeat stories. I don't know how to do anything else. You're welcome. <laughs> so she liked horses. She liked Disney. She likes offbeat stories. Welcome to the club. Yep. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. 
If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. So, so Tim Burton did Batman Returns, and it was his dream job because he set it at night in the snow, as black and white as you could get. He did, he redesigned the Penguin to look like Doctor Caligari. He put uh, Catwoman in skin tight latex with seams all over, just like Sally. He he designed every aspect of it, and he loved it. He had a great time working on this movie, but it didn't sell Happy Meals. And there was a huge complaint from parents that said, I went and bought my child a Happy Meal based on this movie. And there's a lot of BDSM in this movie. And I don't care that my child knows about that. And so the studio was very, very upset that they were not set. Literally, that they were upset that they did not sell Happy Meals. So they 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 said that they needed to go in a friendlier version. So they went with the guy who put nipples on all the bat suits. Okay. <laughs> So uh, he almost did Jurassic Park, but the last minute they decided to hire that Spielberg guy. He almost did Catwoman with Michelle Pfeiffer, but again, uh, Joel Schumacher was busy nippling it up. Right. So uh, by this point, he decided to go and do Ed Wood, a much smaller movie, with his new girlfriend, Lisa Marie. Because, again, when he clicks with someone, they're in all of his movies. Mm. Uh, She eventually broke up with him and uh, sold all of his stuff at auction, which, again, not a great thing. But it was an homage to the low budget science fiction and horror films of Tim Burton's childhood. And it, he, he, he very heavily related to Ed Wood because people had called Ed Wood the world's worst director. And at the time he was feeling a lot of criticism from Batman returns. Mm. So he said, I feel you, Ed Wood. Ed Wood had a mentor relationship with Bella Lugosi. Tim Burton had a mentor relationship with Vincent Price. Vincent Price recently died. Uh, Bella Lugosi had died while Tim Burton was hanging out. So he and Johnny Depp made Ed Wood together. Mm-hmm. And it was, and, and because he and Danny Elfman had worked so much on both Batman movies and Beetlejuice, and they had gotten into a squabble about uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, this is one of just three movies that Tim Burton has done that Danny Elfman didn't score. Wow. But they they got over it. They 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 buried that hatchet long ago. So Howard Shore did the score for Ed Wood. Uh, he later did A Visit with Vincent, which is a tribute to Vincent Price. He produced Batman Forever, even though he hated it. He later did Mars Attacks with Lisa Marie, because again, aliens, and he invited Jack Nicholson back. Because even though he literally needed an interpreter to understand what Jack Nicholson was saying, because Jack Nicholson spoke in very flowy metaphors, and Tim did not understand anything that he was saying. So he had an onset interpreter. So, but again, they got along well. So he did that. And then he produced James and the Giant Peach, which his friend Henry Selleck directed. So in 1998, Superman Lives was going to be a thing. John Peters, the neurotypical that almost ruined Batman, decided that he was going to make a Superman movie because the rights lapsed and then he bought them up. So he, he hired, uh, uh, oh man, uh, clerks, uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith? Yes. Yeah. He hired Kevin Smith to write several drafts. And so 
John Peters wanted a Superman movie where Superman wore corduroy and Michael Jordan shorts as Superman and wore boots with flames and he could not fly. He wanted a giant spider fight because the spiders are the most deadly arachnids uh, of in uh, a, a polar bear fight because polar bears are the most deadly mammal. And he wanted a gay black robot companion and he wanted Chewbacca in the movie. As you do. So, so uh, he brought children into the art department and asked which designs would make good toys. Uh, but again, he, he decided that he wanted Nicolas Cage to be Superman. And Nicolas Cage said, there's only one director I trust because I'm going to get weird with it. I want Tim Burton. So Tim Burton said, an outsider, you say? Yes. Nicolas Cage, you say? Yes, yes. So he was very enthusiastic. So the plan was for Nicolas Cage to be Superman, Chris Rock, another autistic person, to play Jimmy Olsen, and his friend Christopher Walken to be Brainiac. And he he decided that he was going to make this grand thing. And this is Nicolas Cage's reaction to why he wanted to do Superman with Tim Burton. I want to say to children, it's okay to be different. Kids are in class being called weirdo. Don't feel bad. Superman's a weirdo because he's from outer space. And I hope there will be elements that are unique. I think with Tim Burton, there will be. Safe guess. So it was a plan to make Superman an outsider, to make and to make a very, very different version between Clark Kent and Superman. And Nicolas Cage is really, really going for what we may today call the autistic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But again, because uh, Batman and Robin bombed and Warner Brothers cons- was concerned about merch, they decided to put the entire budget into the Wild Wild West starring, uh, uh, oh man, uh, Men in Black, Will Smith. And John oh, Peters. Yeah, I remember that, that one. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And Spider in that movie too. <laughs> so... Uh, Tim Burton said, I basically wasted a year. A year is a really long time to be working with somebody that you really don't want to be working with. And so therefore, uh, he decided to dabble in the mainstream for a little bit with Sleepy Hollow. He decided to pay homage to the horror films of Hammer uh, with Christopher Lee, who played Dracula, which worked alongside Peter Cushing, who will be an upcoming mini episode Mm -hmm. that we will talk about that will tie into this and a great many of other things. So this established his working relationship with Christopher Lee, who would later play Saruman uh, and uh, was the inspiration for James Bond because his cousin Ian Fleming wrote all the James Bond novels. He was a member of MI6, probably a wizard in real life, who knew? But uh, they were friends. And then uh, he decided to make a movie called Planet of the Apes, more closely based on the book than the previous movie was, because the previous plan of the movie, uh, plan of the movie, the previous plan of the apes was written by Rod Serling and very Twilight Zone esque, and uh, he was still with Lisa Murray at this point, who played Nova in the new movie, but that's how he met Helena Bottom Carter, who was the most attractive chimpanzee he had ever met. I bet. And that's when the things with Lisa Marie went south and she sold a bunch of his stuff. And that's when he and Helena Bonham Carter sort of almost sort of became a thing that we'll get into in just a moment. And then his father died. 
So he he read this wonderful book by John August, and uh, he during this time he and Helena Bonham Carter had a child together. Funny enough, they did not uh, live together because they did not like living with other people. So they bought houses next to each other and they lived in separate houses, but together. But 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 he he had a child. He lost his father in this book. Big Fish really, really spoke to him. Edward Bloom is larger than life, a storyteller, and his son does not understand him, just like Tim Burton's father didn't understand him. Mm. And at the end, Will, the main character in the story, tells the story of how Edward Bloom dies because he finally sees the world through Edward's eyes and under finally understands him through the art of storytelling. And Tim Burton has always been a storyteller at heart. And his father did not understand that. Right. And this is a story of connection because throughout Tim Burton's life, he, all he wants is connection. He makes connection with the audience. He makes connection with his co-stars. It's difficult to maintain that connection because even he and Helena Bonham Carter split after a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Danny Elfman had a giant argument that uh, lasted for a while, but they got back together. Uh, he, he, he needs to know who he is. He needs to know who his people are. He needs to have that security. And, this is a big thing. Uh, Edward Bloom is training Will to be a storyteller. Win- Will ends up being a journalist, which is sort of storyteller. But again, uh, a, a journalist has all the facts and none of the flavor. And Edward's world is more colorful, just like Tim Burton's is. Mm-hmm. And I, I swear to God, the ending uh, sequence with tell me what I saw in the witch's eye. Oh, my God. That makes me weep like a baby every single time I see it. Mm. So. It's it was great. And this is the time when uh, he and Helena had two kids. They never lived in the same house and always lived next door to each other. Uh, And she said partially due to Tim's snoring, which, again, due to sleep apnea is a common thing. It is a common thing. She is the one who uh, realized that he was autistic and uh, pointed this out to him and said, you know, you're really autistic. Right. And he was like. Well, I guess I am. And these are some quotes that she said about her relationship. Okay. We, uh, hold on. I'm trying. Okay. Hold on. Let's move. Here we go. Uh, so we see as much of each other as any couple, but our relationship is enhanced by knowing we have our personal space to really retreat to me too. In a relationship, after the first year is over, you can't help but want your own space, she explained. I think that might not be true for everyone, but I agree. We have different telly tastes and we both work from home. But things obviously aren't bad between us or I wouldn't have gotten pregnant, would I? I'm very happy. Bonham Carter was asked how she refers to Burton since they're not married. Scandalous. And she replied, I don't know. I haven't gotten a satisfactory word. Father of my bastards, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I call my husband my ex-husband. I don't ever know what to call because we're divorced. So I'm like, I don't know. Labels are hard. I don't know. And and again, she strikes... Potentially, she might be one of us as well. Uh, so strikes, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the kind of thing that uh, one would expect. Yeah. 
We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowerylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. So he did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, again with Helena Bonham Carter, with a script by John August, one of Tim Burton's new writing friends, because John August also wrote Big Fish. Uh, He later did Corpse Bride with uh, a script by Caroline and John August, because they're both credited. Sweeney Todd... uh, Sweeney Todd is another movie that was not scored by Danny Elfman because Stephen Sondheim well, already did yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, that was already taken care of. <laughs> yeah, he, he did Alice in Wonderland, written by, written by Linda Wolverton, who you may, oh. rec- you may remember from the Beauty and the Beast episode because, yes. boy, she's autistic as all get out. Yeah, we and love her. He, he almost directed Maleficent, also written by Linda Wolverton. And uh, he did Dark Shadows by John August. He did Frankenweedy remake by John August. He did Big Eyes, Ms. Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Uh, The third movie not done by Elfman, but there was no explanation as to why. He produced Alice Through the Looking Glass, also written by Linda Wolverton. And in 2019, he did Dumbo. And Dumbo is an allegory of his experience with Disney because it's all about the big circus and all the glitz and glamour. He invited back his favorites, Michael Keaton and uh, uh, Danny uh, DeVito, uh, because it's all about how the circus wants the freak Dumbo to perform, but they don't understand him or appreciate him. And with Dumbo, he says that he will probably never work with Disney again due to his distinctive style and writing approach not matching with what Disney is currently looking for. He said, it's gotten to be very homogenized, very consolidated. There's less room for different types of things. And he hasn't done anything since then until Wednesday. Uh, and oh. we've, we've I'm like, talked what about happened Wednesday. on Wednesday? Exactly, <laughs> now, yeah. Yes, now I know, and, it's a show. Uh, and he's episode. currently with Monica Bellucci, who uh, you may have remembered from as a bride of Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and is playing... Mrs. Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice 2, which was filming, but now there's the writer's strike and the actor's strike, and it is now on hold. But it's set to be released in 2024, starring Jenna Ortega, who is in Wednesday. Wednesday, yeah. Winona Ryder, starring uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara, and, of course, starring Michael Keaton. So he's bringing the gang back together for another ride, because, again, he works with people that he wants to work with and tells stories that he wants to tell and uh, hopes that uh, people like them because again the the movies where he's been less successful or where he went for the box office returns and he said that there's a certain pressure when the studio gives you a lot of money that you have to mm-hmm. make a lot of money right. so smaller films he can do whatever he wants with but the bigger films like with batman returns he learned that either you sell the happy meals or you get fired right yeah, I have found the same thing. It's like there's there are different levels of success and like I think it means different things to me, especially now that I'm 50, where it's like 
I like I do need to eat and pay for a roof over my head and all that stuff. But I have found like I get how to scale and grow and, you know, my version of doing the big Hollywood feature film. But the cost of that is so high that I'm like, I love working one on one with people on their books and having a few clients and being able to work closely with them. And so even though I could do more, and it's funny, I get like solicitations all the time of like, you could scale, you could grow, you could run ads, you could do it. I'm like, I could, I could, but then someone's going to be asking me like, Hey, we need happy meals that sell. Like, I don't want to, I've done it and I don't like where it goes. And so I think that's a big part of like successful autistic culture is uh, the way I describe it is not growing faster than your nervous system can handle. Like what's I, I was, I was once told by an holistic person that I would be quote unquote more successful if I embraced ABA. And okay. my, my, my response was, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to betray my people. And, uh, yeah, it's by my definition, I think I am pretty successful. I was going to say, how are we defining success? Like harming I, children? Because yeah, <laughs> again, without ABA, I've got a pretty thriving practice. People come to me for a lot of evaluations. I've paid off my student loans. Uh, I've got the podcast. We've got trainings. We've got a lot of upcoming projects. Uh, we've got some books. You have in the, the health works. center in the works. Exactly. We're we Arcadia will be opening relatively soon, and I it will not do ABA, and it will be a bastion of it will be an example of how to treat the autistic people. So. By my definition, I am successful. So uh, I think I, that's the lesson from Tim Burton for everyone is like, whatever your thing is, how can you do it your way? And even if you could make more money, be more successful by some outside metric. I don't know what it means, but it's like there are other ways that I don't know, maybe your mom would like or in Tim's case, his dad might have liked better you should have health care. You should work for a company like Disney. It's more stable than doing your own stuff. Like I'm sure there were plenty of forces on him, girlfriends or parents or whoever that are like, this is whack. You can't just do your own stuff. And there's no narrative. This will never even sell. You're just going to make weird stories like this will never work. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, how much, how, Neurotypical success is is often money driven, but uh, if you have to mask and kill yourself in order to fit in and make the money, is that really success? Right. Right. Yeah. And there is a way. It's not always easy to find, but I think like success leaves clues. And one of the keys here is find your tribe. Oh, I think tribe might be appropriation, but find your peeps, like find your community, build your, and then go back to them. So you don't have to keep explaining yourself and how you work. Like once you find them, my team members have been with me for like 10 years. Like those, most people get in, get out. They're like, this lady's nuts. But the people who get me, they're like lifers. It's like, and so am I. I'm like, tell me what you need. We'll make it happen. There, there is a meme that every time Danny DeVito sees that Tim Burton is calling, he says, don't worry, tell him I'm getting the large top hat and I'm on my way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's so true. So yeah, yeah that's, that is Tim Burton. So, I think so, it's great. 
Yeah. So on that note, hey, Angela, what is your favorite part about being autistic this week? Well, I was just mentioning my team and I have a new team member. Um, you might hear her shout out in the credits, River. And so River's pretty new. We've been working together for a couple of months and she's autistic and it is we just have them. This is not to say every autistic person gets along with every autistic person. We're all just like different humans. But she was working on a project and she messaged me, I need some backup images. And I know the word backup and I know the word images. And so I wanted my brain to tell me what she meant by backup image She's like, I'm working on this thing. And, I need, and I'm like, I don't know what she means. I'm going to ask her. And I was like, I know I'm being autistic in this moment, but can you tell me what backup images means? And she's like, oh, yes. Here, let me explain and provide you with examples. And I was like, oh. This is so much better. Like I had so much trauma before asking her because I'm so used to like my questions being like, how stupid are you? Like, why do you have to ask questions all the time? Why can't you just do it? And it was so like nice for her to understand why I needed her to answer 300 questions before I could do what she was asking me to do. That is excellent. Because I'm mentally... I mentally pictured a dump truck backing up and beeping. So yeah. Back up, right. I'm like, back up, back, back up image. I'm like, do you need a second copy? You already have the image. Do you need me to send you a hard drive, print out copies and mail them to you? But I can't think of why you would need a mailed copy. I came up with so many things that back up copies. So I will tell you what it means in case not to leave a cliffhanger. What it meant was if the size isn't right for the images that you sent, can you send an alternative photo that I could use so that somebody's face or arm doesn't get cut off, aka a backup photo? I like that. that it, it made perfect. I'm like, oh, a backup photo. I literally came up with 30 definitions for backup photo. None this of which were her definition. Yeah. And this is why I think like multiple choice tests, just no. I would go through multiple choice tests and I could find a way to make every single answer work. And I knew more about the question than the teacher. Like I would be like, well, here's how this could be the answer. Here's how this could be the answer. And I would write it in the margins. I would like write these paragraphs and paragraphs of just because it would like drive me crazy. I can see every possible version, except usually one, the one the teacher meant, meant the answer to be would be the one I wouldn't pick just for the record. Oh my goodness. So I, yes, I just want to say like the joy of getting to know your culture at whether you're working with somebody who is autistic or whether you're just working with someone uh, who is committed to working with you in an equitable way and being open to your culture, just like you would work with an exchange student. If you had a Japanese exchange student in your school, you wouldn't like scream at them. You must eat. I don't know, a steak or something, if that's not what they wanted, like you would be like, oh, let me make accommodations because this person's from another country. And so when you know your culture, it's a totally different conversation. I did a, um, I'm doing a new series called Three Scenarios where there's a, a well-behaved 
autistic person who's like masking and they know the right way to act, but it kills them. There's an autistic person who is not masking, but they don't even know or aren't considering in that scenario the right thing to do, uh, the right thing by neurotypical standards. And then in the third scenario, it's somebody who understands autistic culture and they're like, oh, in my country, we do it this way. Does this make sense? And when you know your culture, it's such a, it's a very easy conversation. I was like, I don't actually know what the word backup means. Just going to need you to explain it. Yeah. Could you translate that, please? Could you? I don't understand. So, yeah. Yes. So that's what I got. That's what I loved about being autistic. I also love dress up. And so I got to go get my costume on. Are you dressing up? Are you dressing up tonight? Oh, of course. I, I will be a Jedi. Excellent. You're always a Jedi. We dress up even not on Halloween. I don't know when you're listening to this, but whenever you're listening, we're dressing up, just so you know. Every day is Halloween. <laughs> Every day is Halloween. Thanks, Matt. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Special thanks to our content manager, River Robbins, and Aaron Stoner, our producer for making us look and sound good. Thank you.